As Henry mentioned, we begin our uh, tour through the book of Genesis. What he didn't tell you is we have 48 messages, and that means we're going to go all the way to next Advent, and that also means that you can always um, tune in to the podcast if you happen to miss a particular uh, message. Also pay particular attention to the e-newsletter with the um, blogs that we write in advance and questions we uh, advance to you uh, because uh, we all desire to learn more of the text. I know that in my preparation just for today, uh, I um, learned and saw things I'd never seen before, and obviously that's true for everyone who prayerfully reads and meditates on God's Word. So we begin in Genesis 1, chapter 1, with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. One day, when Augusta was walking down the street, a man came up to him and shoved an idol in his face and said, here's my God, where's yours? Augustin looked at the man and said, I can't show you my God, not because he isn't there, but because you have no eyes to see him. And the reason Augustine could say that was that for decades, he had no eyes to see who God really was. One day, he writes about this. He's in the city of Rome, and he's walking down the street, and he hears some children singing. And he stops, and he listens to them, and they have this chorus of just a couple of words, four in fact, and they keep repeating the refrain, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And at that moment, the Spirit of God came upon the heart of Augustine, and he went to the nearest place where he could find a Bible, and he opened it up, and the pages fell open to the 13th chapter of Romans, the 13th and 14th verse, and he said, it was as if light broke out in the darkness, and he never was the same again. 1,400 years after Augustine, the French philosopher Voltaire made this statement, within 100 years of my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. You know what's interesting about that? 100 years after he died, the French Bible Society took up their office space in his old house in Paris. Somebody has said the Bible is like the sun, and all other writing in the world, if it has any light whatsoever, it derives its light from the sun. Now, if that's true, then the book of Genesis would be the morning light. Have you ever noticed how the morning light Unlike any light, any time of the day, the morning light magnifies the beauty of the landscape. There is something about the morning light that shows all of the relief in the geography within your eyesight. You see things in the morning light that you never see anywhere else. You see the ridges, you see the contours, you see the swales. The morning light is my favorite light of the day. 
There's something about it that brings out all the features that all of the other light illuminates, but not in the same way. And that's true of the book of Genesis. Every theme of the Bible has its genesis in Genesis. Every great doctrine of the church has its moorings, its foundation in the book of Genesis. I mean, think of this. If you, buy, if you build a dog house, you don't need a foundation. If you build a house, you need a footer. But if you build a skyscraper, you need a deep hole filled with rebar and concrete. And when God built the gospel, he built a skyscraper. It's a skyscraper not only in its magnitude, but also in the one it reflects. Reflects him. It's a skyscraper that reaches all the way into heaven, and Genesis, the book of Genesis, is the foundation. I mean, the name itself speaks of its function. It's not a Hebrew word, it's a Greek word. It means to become or to happen. So think about that. The word Genesis means to become or to happen. So questions like, where did I come from? What does this happening mean? One of the best places to turn is the book of Genesis. If you want to know the foundation of faith, you turn to the book of Genesis. If you want to know how the Bible hangs together as a unit, you turn to the book of Genesis. And that's why Henry and I want to start this Sunday, the first Sunday of a new year, in a new series called The Study of Genesis. Now, we don't study this book to find out some scientific fact. We study it because the entire weight of Scripture rests on Genesis. I can't tell you the number of times in my ministry, and I'm sure it's true of Henry, it's probably true in your own life, in your own ministry, how many people have come to you with questions? Questions about faith or about life? And it's amazing how many answers to those questions are found right here in the book of Genesis. Every major doctrine of the Christian church has its moorings in the book of Genesis. Every foundational principle of God and his character is located, founded in the book of Genesis. And so this morning we begin with the first light of the first light, the beginning of Genesis. A couple of decades ago, a pastor in Germany walked into a pub for a meal it was the evening, and he was greeted by the owner. He sat at the table. The waitress came over. He made the order, and as soon as she walked away, a man in the, on the other side of the pub stood up, walked toward the pastor, and said, there is no God. And then he sat back down. The minister walked over to him and put his hand on his shoulder and said, sir, what you've just said is not new. The same thing was said in the Bible over 3,500 years ago. The guy's shocked. He said, what do you mean? It's in the Bible? The Bible says there is no God? He said, yes. In the book of Psalms, David writes, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, the only difference between you and the one David's talking about, he says it in his heart, you yelled it in the pub. That's where the Bible begins. 
The Bible begins in verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, the first four words, looking at the person of God. Verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I'd been at Hebron a couple of years. A young couple came for about six weeks, and then they didn't come back. I found out uh, where they were and what their number was. I called them and said, I'd really like to come visit you. And they said, sure. I still remember the house. I still remember the sofa in that living room. I was there five minutes. And the guy said, you know, the reason we're not coming back to Hebron is because you assume the existence of God. She didn't say anything. He was a spokesman. Now think about what he's saying without knowing it. What he's saying is, we don't just have a problem with you and Hebron, we have a problem with the Bible. Because the Bible, that's where it begins. It begins with God. It assumes the existence of God. Not only does the Bible begin with God, it ends with God. In the beginning, God. And then the last sentence of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all the saints. You see, there's no fairy tale here. The Bible doesn't begin with, let me tell you a story, or once upon a time, or let me prove it to you. The Bible doesn't even start with the words, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It begins this way, in the beginning, God. In other words, before anything else, God is. He is. He is the beginning, and he is in the beginning. Now, think of what that tells us about time. Throughout the history of the uh, human race, there have been two very different views of time. You have the Eastern view, which is cyclical. It's the view that says that life is an endless circle that continues to repeat itself. It has no beginning and no end. That's where reincarnation fits beautifully into that scheme. If you saw the movie, The Bucket List, I love the line that Jack Nicholson says to Morgan Freeman. He said, you know, I never thought much about reincarnation. I mean, how does a snail move up the ladder? By laying down a perfect line of slime? The Greek philosopher Pythagoras once saw a man beating a puppy with a stick. He listened to the puppy's yelps, and suddenly he said, Stop! For I hear in that puppy's cry the soul of my friend. You say, how could a brilliant mathematician like Pythagoras believe that a puppy housed his friend? Because he believed that time was cyclical, reincarnation. He believed that history has no beginning and no end. It's like Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. The Bible rejects that view in the first four words. In the beginning, God. In other words, history is not a cycle. It's linear. It has a beginning and an end. It is moving to a final consummation. 
And here at the beginning of time, the beginning of space, there is only one in focus, and he has a name, and his name is God. You know, the first four words of the Bible are like the Bible's throwing down the gauntlet in the beginning God, like it or not. Before anything else was, God is. He is center stage. You must deal with him. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Second, notice not only is the person of God fully reflected in the first couple of verses of Genesis, but so is the plan of God. Look at verse 1 in its entirety. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One time, Frederick the Great, the great Prussian emperor, was in need of a chaplain. His former chaplain died. And so instead of giving that duty to find a chaplain to someone else, he decided that he would find a chaplain, and he highly praised in his own mind the ability to speak extemporaneously. So he took three pieces of paper, and on them he wrote three biblical texts, and he folded them. He had four candidates. First candidate came and walked up the steps to the pulpit, and he handed one of the sheets of paper. The man unfolded it, saw the text, got up into the pulpit, and then preached for about 20 minutes. The second and third guy, exactly the same, unfolded, looked at the text, stood up, and preached for about 20 minutes. After an hour, Frederick the Great called the fourth candidate, gave him a folded piece of paper, but in, unlike the others, he didn't unfolded as he walked up. He waited till he got there, and then in front of everyone's eyes, he opened up and said, there is nothing on this paper. Just like the tapestry of creation before God moved. And from there, he proceeded to give a 20-minute message about the power and wonder of God. Needless to say, he was the next chaplain. The early church fathers called it ex nihilo. In other words, out of nothing. What they said was God created something out of nothing. In the 19th century, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously said, out of nothing comes nothing. And he's absolutely right if he's talking about the work of men and women. None of us can take nothing and make something. But here in the first sentence of the Bible, the Bible's not talking about the work of men and women. He's talking about the work of God. And what the Bible says is, when God encounters nothing, he makes something. And you know something? That is a theme that runs all the way through the 66 books of the Bible. God is famous for taking nothing and making something. I mean, think of it. Not only does he create the universe out of nothing, he creates in your heart and my heart that's dead an active, viable faith. How does he do it? He does it by his own plan. That's his character. To make something out of nothing. Because God is a master planner. And the centerpiece of his planning is always to bring life out of death. Something out of nothing. 
Then third, notice the power of God in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now notice, there is no struggle here. The Bible is just a matter of fact. Over the face of the deep, there was a void and a nothingness. You know, 40 years ago when I was at Princeton in seminary, they were still talking in, in some vogue way about the Enuma Leash, the Babylonian uh, creation story. And then what they were saying is the biblical creation story is derived from the Babylonians. Now that has been largely debunked, but that was 40 years ago. But you know, when you read the Enuma Leash, there is absolutely no way you think that the biblical creation story derived from that. I mean, you don't have to read it, I'll just tell you what it says. <laughs> it shows these capricious, miscreant gods in a battle. And as a result of this colossal struggle between their own powers, out of that war comes a creation. The Bible is absolutely different than that view. There's no struggle here. There's no fight. God triumphs over any possibility of chaos. He not only creates substance, he creates order out of substance. And that's what Nietzsche never understood. For existentialist philosophers like Nietzsche and Camus and Sartre and all those guys, they believed that life had no meaning. For them, chaos rule is supreme. They label it nihilism, nothingness. For them, the world is a closed system. Everything happens by accident. Starting nowhere and ending nowhere. In fact, Nietzsche once said, the only rational decision a man needs to make is when to commit suicide. But the first two verses of Genesis say he's nuts. There's not nothingness. There's a God who's not only present, but he has a plan to bring good out of evil to bring order out of chaos. He's present, he has a plan, and he has the power to execute his plan. And that's in the first two verses. And then fourth and finally, notice the purpose of God. Look at the end of verse two and verse three. And the spirit of the God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now if the first half of verse two is all we had, the nihilist would be right. If all we understood was it was all without, it was formless and void and full of darkness, we could conclude that life is meaningless. If all we have are random movements of matter and energy, then nothing matters. It's all chaos. Live any way you want to live. Be your own God. But that's not what Genesis tells us. Look what it says, into the darkness, into the formless void comes the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. There's no randomness here. Nothing is left to chance. And the second 
part of the second sentence, the second part of verse 2 tells us. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Some translate that word hover, brooding, like a chicken, a hen sitting on her chicks. The sense of the verb is ownership. The sense of the verb is one giving life to another. The Spirit of God is brooding over the face of the deep, over the chaos, over the emptiness of the void, and into that picture comes a declarative statement, let there be light. Now, some people call that the divine fiat. They're not talking about a European sports car. Talking about a divine imperative. This God who is present, who has a plan and has all of the power, he makes a declarative statement, let there be light, another four-word statement. And there is light. I mean, how does that happen? How is it that God can simply say, let there be light, and there is light? The Bible shows us the one who is light speaks light into the darkness. Do you remember when Jesus was standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had been dead for four days? It's in John 11. He's standing there and he gives two commands. First he says, roll away the stone. And they obey. Then he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus obeys. Is there any greater darkness than death? John doesn't think so. That's why he tells us that as soon as Jesus gives the command, Lazarus walks out, and everyone there is amazed by Jesus' authority. And the word authority has a root, and the root is author. What John is saying is Jesus is not just Lord. He's the author of life. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Colossians that Henry read earlier. All things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. You see, his purpose has never changed. His purpose has always been to bring order out of chaos, light out of darkness, life out of death. What is it that you need today? What is it that you need? Do you need order? Do you need light? Do you need life? He is the author of all three. And the first three verses of Genesis tell us he's got everything you need. The same Lord who speaks to the darkness and it becomes light the same one who speaks to the dead and they come alive speaks to you and me today. And he says, I've got all the light and life and love you need. You see, David is right. A fool says in his heart, there's no God. But do you know what a foolish Christian does? He or she forgets what he's like. I pray we don't. We're just getting started. Think about that. Amen.